chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Chelsea Clinton, Barbara and Jenna Bush, Sasha and Malia, Amy Carter, Caroline Kennedy, Alice Roosevelt. All of these women share the unique distinction of filling the role of pseudo-American royalty as first daughters. Girls whose adolescence took place in the White House and before the eyes of the nation and the world. And, just as Hollywood loves a good princess story, American princesses also get their own subgenre of romantic comedy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Oh gosh, indeed, Eliza. I was absolutely, I mean, everything about this movie screams 2004, but it's really a particular moment of American fascination with first families. I mean, we had three major groups of first daughters in a row. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to talk about this very important subgenre that does not get enough attention. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole sort of like teenage girl in the White House fascination that I think has been true for decades. I mean, I mentioned, you know, people like Caroline Kennedy, which is someone who was a little girl in the White House, you know, when our parents were little girls. But to have a sort of collection of teens in the White House right at that period of time when 24-hour media was really hitting the airwaves, I think just Mm -hmm. blew it into a whole new level. And, you know, not gonna lie, there's actually a pretty good love story here. I was impressed, I have to say, and and I don't think- The love story. Sorry, this is Kate. I was about to say, I was about to say, like, it's a really good thing that we have local romance expert Kate Kearns to talk to us about how great of a romance this is. So, hi, Kate. Hi, this is Kate Kearns, uh, occasional and enthusiastic guest of the pod. My specialty is romance. I um, ghostwrite romance novels, and now also I have my own romance novel coming out this month, so that's exciting. Um, But... Yeah, one of the things, thank you, thank you. When I was watching this movie, one of the things that I realized is how, despite that um, that fascination with the first family that you were talking about and what it means to be a teenage girl in the White House, this movie kind of doesn't need to be about an American first daughter. Like, it's not really about mm-hmm. what it is to be an American on vacation so much. It's about what it means to be a person in the public eye who's a young woman who goes on vacation. And there's a version of this movie where, you know, you do a Roman holiday thing where she's from some obscure European country and now she's in Italy or whatever. Like it doesn't, it doesn't actually have to, as much as I love the DC framing, it doesn't actually have to be in DC for this story that this movie is telling to work. Like they do a really good job on just making the romance work. Absolutely. You know, I mentioned princesses before, and it's because I do believe on a certain level that this really is a princess movie. And you could write this exact same plot with it being a princess who's escaped the palace for the first time, or a child star who's dyed her hair and gone off on her own without her handlers for the first time, right? Like you can fill in the person in the public eye framing and still have the same story work because it doesn't have anything to do with politics. No, it really doesn't in a very refreshing way, particularly as 2004 was a particularly fraught moment in American politics, especially the politics between the U.S. and Europe. 
fun to discuss. <laughs> I have a theory that she's a Democrat, but purely on the basis that she knew the word zygote as an 18-year-old. <laughs> Honestly, good theory. Uh, yeah, anyway, what do you want to talk about? Where shall we dive in? Are, do you want to tell us what Google <laughs> thinks the movie's about? I love that part. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I think we do need to do that. I think it's like the law now. Here's your Google summary for Chasing Liberty, the year of our Lord 2004. Anna Foster, played by Mandy Moore, codenamed Liberty. The daughter of the President of the United States, played by Mark Harmon, can't get the Secret Service off her back when she goes on dates with boys. Accompanying her father on a state visit to Prague, she eludes her protectors and meets a handsome British boy, Ben Calder, played by Matthew Good with whom she embarks on a romantic journey across Europe. But there's something she doesn't know about Ben. He's a Secret Service agent. Well, my friends, that's what Google says Chasing Liberty is about. But what is it really about? I have an answer. Kate, let's hear the answer. I think it's about identity. I think that vacation romances are either about in in, fictional vacational romances I think they are either about someone trying on a different identity from their usual life or they're about like taking time for yourself and healing but I think the ones that are the most interesting to me for the most part are the ones that are about this trying on of identities like in the very beginning when she's introduced It's the scene where she's getting ready for her date and she's trying on all these outfits and she's trying all these different voices of saying, of course you can kiss me or yeah, sure, you can kiss me. And she's trying out all of these different characters and versions of herself. But in all of them, I love how from the get-go we're positioning her as having the power. She is assuming that somebody is going to ask her consent before she is kissed. She's assuming that she's going to be the one to call the shots of, yes, you can kiss me. Like, it still is that, like, playful, girlish thing of she's assuming she's getting the kiss. She's not the pursuer. She's not kissing him. But she is a heroine who takes for granted that she has initiative and a say-so in her relationship with the world, whichever of her identities she's trying on or playing with. I like that you point that out because Mandy Moore's character is definitely, you're right, she's very confident the whole time. You know, she, at the beginning, there is that little sort of, you know, self-conscious thing of getting ready for a date and not knowing exactly how to present yourself. But in general, in the movie, she does not doubt herself and her abilities and her strength and her right to have this freedom and all of that sort of stuff, which is one, I think, just refreshing to see in a movie, especially in a movie about a younger woman. Um, and two, I think is interesting in the context of Mandy Moore's star text as well, because at this point, Mandy Moore was making the full transition from teen pop sensation to actress and perhaps older um, musician as well. And she had, you know, tried out a few things, been in a few movies. She's starting to sort of come into her own in this new identity the character that she plays in this movie, even in the movie, goes through a hair transformation. You know, she begins with the sort of long, blonde, girly girl hair, and then she gets a sort of like rock star shag cut and dyes it darker. And it does sort of feel like a young woman coming into her own as an actual adult human. Absolutely. I have to say, I think Anna Foster is probably one of my favorite uh, female protagonists we've run across in these movies, in part because of everything that you all have just said, that she's allowed to sort of have a dynamic, complex personality that's burgeoning into womanhood without being insecure. 
Like Mm -hmm. one of the reviews I was reading was talking about how part of the reason why it works is that Mandy Moore brings this intelligence to the character and her performance, which is true. Mm -hmm. She very much does. But what I think about the writing that's really lovely is that the writing also allows Anna Foster to be smart, but also a little bit of a rebellious wild child to be like really into boys, but also about her, you know, her own uh, ambitions and aspirations and self-actualization. She wants to explore the world and meeting guys as part of that. It's not the only thing. So yeah, I just have so much respect for how they wrote this character. I think she's beautifully well-rounded, really impressive. I also think that identity is nicely mirrored in, um, or that identity question is mirrored in the conflicts of the other people in the movie. Like you have her father, the president, who around her is always presented in a very authoritative way. Like, you know, he's a good dad and stuff, but he's very much father knows best and also president knows best. And he gets moments of humanization, like when his wife's like, oh my God, you were smoking again. Uh, Or when he asks his cabinet members, like, wait, which one is third base? You know, (laughs) he gets little moments of humanization and vulnerability, but he takes those moments on and off and he uses them very strategically. He's a character who is very aware of public image. And then you pair Mm -hmm. that with the Secret Service agent who is pretending to be just this guy who's on a road trip with her instead of, I don't know, can you say it's a road trip if they're on a Euro rail train? I don't know. But, you know, he's pretending to be someone he isn't. And slowly the thing that he's pretending to be takes on more and more of his identity until, spoilers, it ultimately leads to a career change at the very end as part of his, you know, character arc and resolution. So it's... A movie that it's just very tightly written everything so many things come back to that question of what is it to have to play with your identity and try to try and figure out who you want to be next and it's even mimicked in mm-hmm. like the gondola character who used to be an accountant right like <laughs> they they keep coming back to this in you know yeah. little delicate seasonings and big like yep that's the main course that's the flower that's the meat yeah absolutely they really let a lot of the characters be very decisive and especially in romantic comedies in farcical things i think a lot of times the plot problems come from indecisive characters characters who don't know what they want or don't know how to talk to the person about what it is that's actually going on um and matthew good's character who is you know a Secret Service agent who's undercover, obviously he has to struggle within himself about what to tell Anna and whether he wants to keep doing his job, whether he wants to kiss her, whether he wants to admit the truth to her. But even that, he's sort of constantly making decisions in every scene about how he's going to handle the situation. And she, as we said, is very confident in the way that she goes about making her decisions. But even the other characters they interact with are constantly just sort of like being who they are and making life choices in a way that's really refreshing. Um, And it's so funny because this movie, it is silly. It is, you know, you have to buy into a pretty wacky premise in order to go along with it. But it's got a lot of real strength to its characters. And this movie got critically panned when it came out. I didn't realize that until I was researching it. But it has only like an 18% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I find... It really plays into, I think, a very particular cultural moment. And as we know, people like to shit on women, on young women, and specifically on pop stars and women who are popular with teenage girls, right? So Mandy Moore, as much as she had now had a successful music career and was trying to rewrite herself as a successful actress, the zeitgeist was, 
oh God, here's this pop star who's trying to be an actress and is in this shitty movie that was made for teenagers. It can't possibly be of a quality. And it is of a quality. It has a good, it's got a good story. It's got good performances. It's enjoyable. You have to be able to get past that societal expectation of shitting on something just because it's made for young women. And it's hard sometimes to get past that, you know, that trend. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, it probably suffers from the fact that a very similar movie uh, <laughs> came out exactly the same year, starring Katie Holmes, uh, which is just called The President's Daughter, I think? It's called The First Daughter. First Daughter. The First Daughter. a worse movie. Yeah, I watched, like, the first couple scenes of that. I don't know if it was at someone's house or if it was on TV or what, but I remember watching, like, the first couple scenes of that when it came out. And thinking, I'm going to love this because, you know, princess movie. And then I just, I, we had to stop watching for some reason. And I just didn't care. And at the time, like. No, it's, a, it's truly terrible. And it was also panned. And so then because like, of that, I think I assumed for a long time I wouldn't watch this one. And then I watched it also at a sleepover later on. And I was like, oh, my God. This, this is so what the better. genre is supposed to be. It just, it sizzles, it clicks. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the interesting thing is that First Daughter, which was also panned as being a bad movie, at the time it had the bigger name attached to it because it had Katie Holmes, who had a little more star power at that point on an acting stage. Um, and it came from a bigger studio and it had better, um, better marketing and advertising. And so it was sort of billed as, oh, here's this new big movie, you know, about this teenage girl. And there's also this shittier movie with a less, you know, popular actress that's coming out right after it with the same premise. No one go see that. Except that Chasing Liberty is so much better than First Daughter and I think has had more staying power over the time. Well, and I have this theory about the plot structure that I'm curious what you guys think. In terms of why I think people panned it is that I wonder if... One of the things that really appeals to me about it is that in most romantic comedies, when it's a heterosexual pairing, the woman is most often asked to change. She mm -hmm. has some sort of flaw that she has to overcome. And then in, in the final romantic gesture, she overcomes that flaw to accept love. In this case, the roles are reversed. From mm -hmm. the beginning, Anna knows exactly what she wants and she goes after it. And people who don't meet her standards and don't treat her with respect get axed. And the person who really has to step up to the plate in this film is Ben. Like in the end, she's the one who makes the big romantic gesture, as she calls it, right? And mm -hmm. asks him to embrace love and to make the change. And he does. And I think that that maybe that reversal, role reversal might have just not appealed to the male critics at the time. It's certainly possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are people who are turned off by or at least so unfamiliar with that they can't immediately identify with a female character who's this strong in her sense of self especially a young female character. And I will also say, watching it this time around, I was really struck by, this is one of the movies that's about an 18-year-old girl that I really felt was about an 18-year-old girl. You know, like in all movies, there may be times where you're like, oh, that seems a little outgoing or a little self-assured or a little whatever for someone of that age. And, you know, okay, she's just very, very confident. We'll have to accept that. But in general, I felt like she was at sort of the right level of maturity of both intelligence and naivete of what she wanted, the way that she interacted with men, the way that she looked at her own sexuality, I thought felt accurate for someone who was about her age. She seemed to have some experience, but not a lot of experience, but she was ready for more experience. You know, like it was written like someone who'd actually spoken to teenage girls sometime in the recent past before writing the script. While we're talking about her age, so one of the things that 
on paper I know I should have more issues with the movie for, but mm -hmm. in reality I don't because they're just all so darn charismatic. Ostensibly, according, she's 18 and he is 23, we find out later on in the movie. Which, in real life, that's an age gap where I would be wary and concerned and a little bit like, let's not romanticize that. Like, obviously, once you're really honestly just past 18, not nearly as big of an issue. But like, at that, like a year ago, that relationship would have been illegal. So, you know, like, that's the thing where I feel like the way they make it work is because they do such a good job of balancing the power dynamics for both characters. Like, that's half of it. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other reason it works is because, you know, in most romances, it's not equally divided between whose story it is. Most of the time, like, both characters are leads, they both matter, but we're slightly more, like, it's really being driven, it really most matters to one of those characters. And for us, we're in her perspective, she's the younger one. From her version, she never sees herself as powerless, so I think that's how, that plus, oh my god, Matthew, what's his last name? Good, so good, so very good. <laughs> no, like, it's uh, it just his face. Just the face look when he's just like, ah, it's so good. Like He has that forearm sweatband from that period that like I forgot I found so attractive. And then I saw it and I was like, <gasps> Matthew Good has been in so many things that I've watched over the years. And he will always be, oh, hey, it's that guy from Chasing Liberty, at least for like a brief moment before I'm like, no, it's Matthew Good. Because like, I think it, I think I imprinted on him watching this movie as a teenager. He's just so beautiful and charming and charismatic in this. And watching it now, I was like, nope, still in love with you. Nothing's changed. So interestingly for me, the one place where when I was watching it again, where I'm like, ah, this part isn't landing the way it's supposed to for me is that part right before they have sex when she's like, I'm going to go have sex with the giant German dude. And he like reaches his tipping point where he's just like, no, and like has his big thing where it's not his big romantic declaration because he doesn't say I love you. But it's the one where he decides to stop primarily being her bodyguard and shift to also being this man who's interested in her. Mm -hmm. And he makes this declaration about how he doesn't want to sleep with anyone else because he's jealous, he's into her, you know, all of that. And it didn't have the big cumulative feel that those moments are supposed to have. And I think watching it, I think it's partly because this movie is at its strongest when it when its characters have big emotions you can relate to, but it's holding itself back just this little bit. Like when there's just that little bit of restraint, but like that to mm. me is the part where the movie feels most comfortable and authentic and interesting and relatable. It's interesting because I like that moment where he's, you know, sort of throwing everything away and deciding to go for it with her. My problem with that is not necessarily his emotions, but it is one of the few places in the movie for me where the squickiness of their situation does sort of pop out to me because he is this secret agent who she doesn't know is tailing her and is reporting back to her father and the rest of the Secret Service. And in this moment, he's deciding essentially to throw his phone away and stop reporting on her and to go have sex with her. And that is the one moment where a part of me is like, hmm. You're literally a Secret Service agent who is about to go have sex with the president's daughter. This is weird. You know how Janelle imprinted on the sweatbands in middle school? I 
imprinted on that moment. Not the first moment where he throws the phone away, the second one where he throws the phone away. Like, middle school me or high school me or whenever I watched it, it was like, <gasps> so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's still a part it's of a big moment. Well, and I, there's still a part of me that responds to that is that idea of, um, you know, it's it's an actions to speak louder than words moment. And it's also, some, there's something about, that is interesting to me about a romantic action that the audience knows how big of a gesture it is. And the person mm-hmm. the gesture is being done for doesn't actually know what the other person just turned their back on mm-hmm. or gave up. Like that's, that's an interesting dynamic to me. There's something about it that makes it feel much more authentic. You're not wrong about any of the squickiness. Like you're absolutely <laughs> right. But I think there are other things mm-hmm. in the scene that work for me well enough. I'm willing to let the other well, stuff. Stay. And I definitely agree with you about the the joy of sort of watching a moment that you as the audience member know is bigger than some of the people in the scene do. I think that part of it works. I think, you know, with with the vocabulary I now have in my mind to think about these things, I think it is a consent issue for me because the idea of him kissing her when she still doesn't fully know what he is is okay to me but when they're actually like having sex and having this moment and it's not just sex either it's like seems to be them beginning a relationship and she doesn't still know this whole thing about him I think that is what the like one moment where I'm sort of like I feel like maybe you should have told her the truth before climbing into her sleeping bag yeah these are the these are the moments when the contemporary uh use of the bed trick or the bet trick uh, mm-hmm. really get to be quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I agree. It's very difficult for us to, to to work around this idea of deception, of consent via deception. So yeah. that's something that to me is actually... Uh, this. Okay, this is partly because in my own novel that you can buy later this month, um, like, <laughs> so you when you write a romance novel, it is a very tricky thing to have one character lying to the other for the majority of the story. Mostly it doesn't work and Mm -hmm. you shouldn't do it. I absolutely did it, which is why I've thought long and hard about how do you make this something that you can still root for as a couple. One of the ways they do it here, and it's obviously not foolproof because now it's not working as much for you now that time has passed and we're in a different cultural moment, but they have that moment when they're watching the opera and she talks about how it is okay to lie to someone a little bit in order if like you're Mm. in order to pursue a greater good for like both of you as lovers or like pursue your truth or whatever if you're kind of this idea of Mm -hmm. if your intentions are pure and if you're authentically in the moment then maybe the lie that gets you there is okay and he's actually the one who argues against it and says no I I don't think that's okay that's still a lie and so you get to both lay the groundwork for why she's going to eventually forgive him and be able to get over this. And you also lay the groundwork for why he might be able to tell himself it's okay that he's lying to her because she just said it's okay that someone would lie to someone else in that scenario. God, Kate, I hadn't even until this moment thought about just how smart that earlier scene is. Hey, that's not the only thing they like, do. God, this movie's so good, you guys. It's so good. Okay, here's the other thing it's they really do. Good. At the very beginning... 
when he says, what's your last name? And she lies to him. Mm -hmm. That is a crucial moment because she's the first person to lie between the Mm -hmm. two of them. That is true. They are technically both lying to each other. Like he obviously knows what her lie is. So he knows who he's getting into bed with. But as far as she knows, he doesn't. Well, and that's the thing. It's a very careful balance of... And it's not, it's not always, it's not consistently balanced, but it's teeter-totter where it goes back and forth of, on the one hand, she, like, he has all the power in terms of he has all the knowledge and the information, but she has the power in terms of, like, she's his boss's daughter. She's going on a train. She's like, bye, y'all. You don't have to come with me. And he absolutely does or he's going to get fired. There's also an element of he's, you know, a creep if he pursues her. So he really can't do that. And he can't tell her the truth because he's promised her dad he wouldn't. And there are ways in which he he is portrayed as tangled up and ways that in which she is portrayed as free. And in reality, I don't know that that would be enough to justify this, but the way that the movie is built, they're very careful to keep them close enough to a level Mm -hmm. of being equals and being balanced in their power. You very rarely tip over into the, nope, this doesn't feel okay, I'm not rooting for this anymore. I also think Ben's character helps with this too, because just as Anna's a really well-written character, Ben is less fleshed out, I would say, than Anna is. Um, But I, I think they did a really good job balancing his sort of sense of duty and commitment to his role, to his job, with a kind of emotional vulnerability that he offers um, at various points, like at first in kind of small fits and starts, but then in really, you know, major ways as he starts opening up about his parents' marriage. And that's not a lie, right? That's true. We know that. So I think that that, that also helps, that we we don't see the many red flags we often see with the male leads in these uh, travel rom-coms. So I'm, I'm very pleased to see that. Ben, ben feels like a very solid, very all but for the lie, a good guy. And that helps a lot too. He's also giving, we mentioned duty and commitment. There's the scene at the very beginning with her mom and her dad when she asks her dad to make a promise to her that it will only be two agents when she goes to this opera and her mom says never ask a president to promise you something and she says i'm Mm. not i'm asking my dad and then you know shenanigans happen her dad ends up breaking his word and sending more than two agents with her it's this whole violation of trust that spirals out for her into why she decides to go on this giant road trip is This idea of she wanted someone to promise her something and keep their word, and they didn't. And then you set that up with Ben's history of his parents, where he says that his mom wanted uh, his dad to choose her over his job, and he never did. He never made the big gesture. So you also have that dynamic of a man who who always chose his job didn't follow through on the promises implied by getting married and then ends up losing his family because of that or at least you know whether or not he's upset about it that's something that affected Ben and then when Ben has the opportunity to get her there get her to this parade the thing he says is I promised I would take her that's his specific thing is I promised and then he does his best to deliver on it and he delivers on it in a flawed way obviously when he has to pick between his job in between a promise he made to her, 
he picks her. And he's the first person, first man in the movie to be depicted as doing that. Absolutely. They definitely lay all of that groundwork and then have him act on it. I also think that a lot of the things that make Ben work really come down to Matthew Good's acting skills. Because for a character that is fairly surface, certainly compared to the complexity with which they write Anna's character, he plays it with a lot of nuance. Even early on when they're first sort of doing this back and forth thing of, are you going to follow me everywhere I go? Is it weird that we're now traveling together? You can see the moments when he's making a decision to go along with her because he has to for his job versus the moments when he kind of doesn't even realize he's making decision the decision because he's so entranced by her. You know, he really shows quite quickly that he is enchanted by her and, and is very sort of surprisingly touched by her enthusiasm and her quest for adventure. And you can see those little changes in his facial expressions and in the way he speaks to her when he's exasperated because he's like, oh my God, my job is so difficult versus when he's like, oh, please don't hurt yourself. I'm starting to care about you. And all of that is it's little things, but it really makes him very compelling as you watch him go on this journey with her. I could not agree more. And I think that that's why the scene where they are on the train to Venice and mm-hmm. she... And she says to him, you have a little thing for me, don't you? That scene and him having to like say like, no, I don't. And you realize through Matthew Good's acting that as he's saying those words, he's realizing that's another lie. Mm-hmm. It's just magnificent. And it's also such a great showcase for Anna's character. Because when she said that, I thought, yes, I love this. This is a teenage girl who is, you know, very interested in having a sexual and romantic life. And she's not afraid to, to speak the truth, to say like, yeah, I see it. You have a thing for me. I'm not naive. I know what's going on here. Why else would you follow me around? You're a man. What are you doing here? I just, I absolutely loved that because there's there's a, a place where there's there's playfulness there, but there's a lot of like truth telling and also letting the truth come out even when you're lying like Ben. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a really masterful scene. I love it. I also love one of the things that I love that sh- happened shortly after in that scene is the moment where they're mad at each other. He offers her toothpaste and initially she says no and then she says yes. And then they both like angry brush their teeth in silence. Um, and it's so good. It's one of those moments where if you are going to, if you're going to write something where the characters are lying to each other in these very big ways then the way that you sell the audience on this is a care this is a relationship you should root for is you show them teaming up and this movie shows mm. them teaming up over and over again there's you know the part where he the very first time when she gets on the back of his motorcycle and drives away uh he's not actually following orders like when we meet him later and find out he's a secret service agent the other agents are like, why the fuck did you do that? And he's like, I'm trying to avoid a scene. And you're like, uh-huh. Also, there was a cute girl who said, take me away on the back of your bike. Like, he's, mm-hmm. you know, like, they show them so often. They're so careful to build them as teammates. Like, and I think the pinnacle of that is the part where they, like, bungee jump together. I was just about to say that. I was about to say, you know, they, they build up to that, and then they get to the scene, and they've had a fight, and she's run off ahead of him, right? Like, they're at a point where they're not talking to each other, and yet you've seen them team up so much that when he shows up and sees she's about to bungee jump, there's a, a jump cut 
to the two of them being strapped in together, you never even see the argument they have where he's clearly going to be like, well, then I'm going with you. And she's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're flirting with me again. No, stop. But you know it happens because you've seen it happen already that you don't even question it when that jump cut occurs. You're just like, of course they're going to bungee jump together. How else would they do this? And I love his face so much because she's gung-ho about it until the moment they're about to do it. And then she gets nervous and looks at him for reassurance. And I'm sure he was absolutely against it until the moment that she's strapped to him and this clearly matters to her. And then he gets over his exasperation and he's like supportive and reassuring and all the things you want your European fantasy boyfriend to be. Ah, Yeah, it's just so good. It's so good. May I just say I do jump a little bit in that moment where they actually do the jump. Are you saying, Eliza, that you would not go bungee jumping with Matthew Good if he asked you to? Um, If Matthew Good wanted to hold me in his arms and leap off of a bridge, I would 100% be there for it. But my eyes would be closed. I, f- I feel like we shouldn't close things out without talking briefly and with a little bit more depth as we started out the podcast, thinking about this presidential daughter uh, mm. subgenre. We got to talk about the other um, attacks at it, you you know, uh, with first daughter, but, but what is it that we, like, if we were getting back deep into the appeal of this, why did so many first daughter movies come out between 1998 and 2004? And, and what do they do for us now when we, when we watch them back? Well, you know, I have a particular theory about this. Um, this movie and first daughter, although they technically came out during the Bush era, I think that they're still more inspired by Chelsea Clinton. Um, And the other movie, which we haven't mentioned yet, but is worth mentioning, is the Disney Channel original movie, My Date with the President's Daughter, which is, I think, at both times, the worst and best of these three. But that one came out a number of years earlier that came out in 98, I think. And so that's clearly inspired by Chelsea Clinton because it's right in the middle of the Clinton era. As I said before, you know, media had really reached this sort of 24-hour news cycle, 24-hour TMZ pop culture moment. MTV was, you know, leading the day. But also, the first family itself was very intriguing to the cultural landscape at the time. You know, you had Bill Clinton, who was a very charismatic leader who had sort of risen up the ranks quite quickly, had knocked out uh, Bush Sr. after only one term, was appearing on, you know, Arsenio Hall and playing the saxophone. He was a different sort of politician who was very appropriate for that moment. And then you also had a new kind of first lady in Hillary Clinton, you know, a whole new brand that we hadn't really seen before that people were very divided on. They loved her. They hated her. That has continued to be true for her entire career. Um, But back then, especially, there were people who were very excited to have this power dynamic of a power couple in the White House and people who were very angry about it. And then they had this young girl who was a tween when she entered the White House. I think Chelsea was 11 or 12, still with braces and you know, frizzy hair and covered in pimples when she entered the White House and when she left in college. And so the world got to watch this family and their teenage daughter grow up and this couple have a very public, not particularly healthy marriage and, you know, and all these things that entranced everyone and captured the attention. And so I think it it makes sense that movies would start to pick up on that and say, like, this is a person of interest. I'm not really interested in the first daughter dynamic. Like, it's not that it's not interesting. It's just that if you're going to tell a story about DC, everybody who 
has power or who ha is trying to have power in government and in the White House, to me, is a more intriguing story. I don't think that a first daughter story is a story about DC, though. I think it's a story about adolescence. Yes, and I think it's good. I think they're interesting, but I don't, I can, as a function, I can see what the White House setting does to set up this type of story. Yeah, and it's it's funny for me because these movies always, the three movies that, that we've referenced so far, which are the major presidential daughter movies, always have the same sort of like overarching conflict, which is that the presidential daughter um, is too reined in, you know? She's being like totally crowded by her dad's career and she can't be a normal teen. And what's interesting about that is that it's always about her being prevented from like living um, an unsheltered life. But the... But the angle that they take on it is so, um, I mean, obviously it's romanticized, it's about romance, but in real life, presidential daughters get kind of dragged through the mud. I mean, Chelsea Clinton definitely did. The Bush twins, oh my God, the number of jokes and the horrible tabloid stories about the Bush twins. And then Sasha and Malia Obama, even though they were young girls, they often got uh, um, criticized or, you know, overly scrutinized on social media. So it's interesting that these movies take the angle that they're, too sheltered instead of the fact that like everybody's watching them all the time from a larger public standpoint. Um, but also I wanted to say that um, my greatest regret about the presidential daughter movies is uh, I don't, I, I'm with Kate. I don't find them as appealing as some other stuff, mostly because the fact that we have never had an Alice Roosevelt movie is actually like <laughs> such a crime. Like I like, wanted to bring up Alice on. Roosevelt when Eliza was talking about first daughters at the beginning. Like, Oh. Alice is amazing. Everyone go Google Alice Roosevelt right now. Y'all, that is that that rom-com writes itself. Outrageous <laughs> Alice Roosevelt cannot be stopped from stomping through the White House and stomping on hearts all over the Washington. I mean, it's just it's just perfect. Someone do it, well, please. And that romance ends with a White House wedding. Alice Roosevelt got married in the White House. She was one oh of the God. first first daughters to do that. <laughs> Not the first, because there were some in the 1800s as well. But yeah, no, I mean, like, there's a great story there. Can we talk a little bit about the end of the movie? I feel mm -hmm. like it's mm -hmm. interesting in that most rom-coms end in a sort of euphoric, bubbly way. And this is one of the few rom-coms that I feel about especially about young people, that I feel like ends in a kind of quiet grounding of adulthood. And it's very lovely and mm -hmm. warm and happy. And I genuinely believe their romance is going to work out for at least several years. But it's not that bubbly happiness. And I think some of it is because by virtue of it being a vacation romance, the vacation ends. And her heartbreak and finding out he lied to her leads to her like maturing like you see her coming back from college and she's still got her brunette stuff but she's wearing you know a red sweater now and she's not racing through the white house she's walking calmly and she checks with the guards and makes sure her dad is free before she goes to talk to him and she's also when she's calling him her dad on the shit she's calling him on it not from a teenage position but from a I'm being calm about it and I'm not, you know, and I'm letting you know that that decision you made still hurt me. Like, she's, she feels grown up and the movie treats that not as a bad thing, but also mourns it a little bit. That transformation doesn't go away when she finds it. And I think if you think about it again from the, we're talking about a first daughter standpoint, what makes being a first daughter different than being a princess 
um, or a rock star's kid or whatever, is that there's an end date, right? I mean, like, as I said, you continue to be in the public eye to a certain degree, but I think that success as a first kid is to have your parent no longer be the president, no longer be a kid and get to grow up and go be almost normal, right? Like that's the success is that I can go to college and maybe only have one secret service agent who keeps their distance because people have sort of started to move on from their fascination with me. Can we also talk about how it ends in England, which is literally a midpoint between US and (laughs) Europe? Like... Your question with vacation romance is is always, how does it end? Does the person stay in the vacation forever, like in, uh, what was it, uh, A Good Year? Or, you know, other movies where they end up temporarily moving to the country and then they end up staying there and this is their new life and they just embrace the European ethos. Or it's a, you know, coming back to reality, but now they've changed and view their surroundings differently. And she literally finds a middle ground. Yeah, I like that. The idea of them just staying in London works for me. It is. It's it's very good. And I could come up with some cultural analysis shit about how the UK was a better partner for the US in the war on terror than all of those <laughs> other European countries. But we don't need to go there. We don't. This movie's great. I love it. And, it. and it may just be because, you know, Matthew Good has a good accent. So, like, why not, <laughs> you know, embrace the Britishness? Do you think this movie doesn't work as well as a vacation movie if he had had an American accent? Oh, absolutely. No, he needs to be at least vaguely yeah. European. Oh, my God. When no. she first runs into him and, and he just, like, opens his mouth and that British accent, that upper crust, <laughs> like, eaten accent comes out. Jesus. Jesus. It's gorgeous. So when I, okay, admission time, when I am writing a novel before you like get to the part where you know the characters well enough, I'll like create kind of character collages to start off. Definitely use Matthew Good as my placeholder for the last big fake. Kate, I'm really excited to read the book picturing Matthew Good now. I gotta tell you. I mean, I gave him glasses, so I changed it a little bit. Uh, every week we like to Who are Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey? You better believe I'd jump on the back of your motorcycles. You can support us and become part of the Romcom Killjoys family by going to patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. We have a number of different tiers that offer different fun behind the scenes things. You can also go to romcomkilljoys.threadless.com to check out our merch shop. And keep an eye on that. There may be a few new things popping up soon. And like us on Facebook and Instagram. Well, um, friends, I, I think it's pretty simple to say that we're not talking about antidotes this week. We're talking about supplements. Okay, so I feel like maybe, you know, Kate, you go first as our guest, please. What's your supplement for Chasing Liberty? Well, if you like... um nice, kind, restrained heroes on European vacations, wherein the couple works really super well together as a team, but also have a big fundamental secret that they're not telling each other that is going to cause problems when the truth comes to light. May I recommend The Last Big Fake by Kate Kearns, available in your normal ebook publishing things on, I think, April 20th. But I'm going to be honest, I don't know my exact pub date because I couldn't find it in my email just now. So at some point in late April, you can buy a book I wrote. It's about a European vacation and art forgery 
and it's great. Also in the I'm not just tooting my own horn, I have other books to recommend. I would like to recommend Red, White, and Royal Blue uh, by Casey McQuiston. I'm not actually sure how to say that name, so forgive me if I mispronounced it. But it is about a first son who has, it has a frenemies thing going with the Prince of England, a uh, fictional Prince of England, and they end up having to pretend to be friends for the sake of creating good PR and naturally and obviously fall in love. And so it gets that fun uh, first child coming out of age, coming into themselves. You get the actually pretty well-structured romance, very fun and sweeping. Um, the idea of what is it like to do all this in the public eye. Um, but then also at the same time, it, the main character, the first son, Alex, is very interested in a career in politics and in trying to use his power intelligently um, and is, you know, just much more ambitious about politics and what can be done with it than our heroine in this movie was. So if that's something you're into, um, I highly recommend it. It's got a very uh, rose-colored glasses escapist feel to it that's quite fun and lovely. So I was a little stuck on what to recommend for this movie because um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to pull out of it. Um, I'm going to start with if what you love about this movie, understandably, is just Matthew Good's face. Um, I recently just binged A Discovery of Witches, which was surprisingly... Like, I thought I would enjoy it, but I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. It's really interesting and funky, and, you know, it's it's a it's a witch and vampire story, so it has all of those elements you expect from it, but it's a lot of fun, and Matthew Good is very pretty in it. Um, so, yeah, if that's what you want, just go watch that. Everyone should. Um, if What You Want is another movie that has this same kind of feel... We keep comparing it to a princess movie, so it totally makes sense that this is what kept popping into my head. Go watch The Princess Diaries. Like, I just feel like they're very similar sort of coming-of-age stories about a girl, you know, finding her power and finding her place in the world. If, you know, what you want is a good movie about antics between Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews, go watch The First Princess Diaries. If you want a movie that has a more convincing couple as far as romantic chemistry. Go watch The Second Princess Diaries Wait, with Michael Erasure. I will oh, not stand Nicole. Um, Michael in the movie is shit, and I will die on that hill. Anyway, Janelle, have some opinions. What should we watch next? Um, I, I do have some opinions. I mean, my first opinion is that uh, I love Michael. I do. I loved him in the movie. I loved him in the book. I, I have a Michael problem. Um, but here are my supplements for Chasing Liberty. Um, so my first one is that, uh, you might have, uh, seen in the news recently that, uh, Sasha Obama has joined TikTok and she was on there being young and beautiful and living her life and people had some stuff to say about it. Um, so, uh, I was quite delighted by this article I came across on the topic from BET called Black Twitter on Standby for Anyone Trying to Come for Sasha Obama. What's great about this article is it's just a collection of the best of Black Twitter just absolutely saying, not in my house, friends, and just coming to Sasha Obama's defense to be like, you know what? This young, beautiful woman is just living her life, and just because she is the daughter of a president of the United States doesn't mean you get to say anything about what she does, about what she looks like, about who she hangs out with, so mind your peas and carrots. 
It's just, it'll bring joy to your life. Just, just read it. And then maybe, I don't know, go check out Sasha Obama's TikTok and see how she's doing. It seems like she's thriving. So that's great. Um, and then uh, last, of course, uh, we, as we discussed the um, absolutely iconic classic Disney Channel original movie, My Date with the President's Daughter. But if you're not a, a 90s kid, as we are, you might have uh, not known that that film, the best part about it is indeed its uh, titular, the main song... Is, a, is an absolute banger from the presidents of the United States of America. And it is what appropriately titled, bop. My Date with the President's Daughter. And yes, it does go, My Date with the President's Daughter. My Date with the President's Daughter. President's oh, daughter. Yeah, my Date with Her. And now that's going to be stuck in your head for a month, oh, and yeah. it is my fault, and I regret nothing. You're welcome. It's been stuck in my head all week, Janelle. Just all week. I had to pull it up on YouTube earlier to like get it out of my head, which is why I know the full movie is on YouTube because that also popped up. Love the idea of uh, European holiday princess archetype. Then I think you should watch Roman Holiday. Like if you're like, ah, oh, I loved, I love romance, but this just it wasn't bittersweet enough. There was too much joy. Be melancholy. <laughs> Be melancholy while the dulcet tones Absolutely. of the presidents of the United States of America float into your mind. You're sad, you're crying, and all you can think is, my date with the president's daughter. My date with the president's daughter. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time.